Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Vasquez, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist Section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Start with our first case. We have our patient here who is SB, and she's a 79-year-old female who was brought into the emergency department with new onset shortness of breath and dyspnea on exertion. She was in her usual state of health until earlier this week when she noticed she was unable to walk up one flight of stairs. She also reports feeling as though her heart is racing. Some pertinent past medical history includes an NSTEMI in 2016, a previous pulmonary embolism in 2019, and a breast cancer diagnosis in 2020. She additionally takes tamoxifen. Other pertinent medications for her include dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel. And her pertinent labs include an INR of 1.1, a serum creatinine of 1.1, a hemoglobin of 8.2, and notably she's severely thrombocytopenic with platelets of 4,000. Additionally, both her high sensitivity troponin and nt BNP have been elevated. And so a chest CT was done and it revealed acute bilateral PEs with right heart strain. The ED physician orders a heparin infusion. And so this brings us to our first question. What would be your response to the physician regarding starting the heparin infusion? One, recommend initiating the heparin infusion now at 18 units per kilo per hour and checking an APTT in six hours. Two, recommend waiting to start heparin until platelets reach 150,000. Three, recommend transfusing platelets to 50,000 and initiating heparin once the platelets reach this threshold. Or four, recommend apixaban 10 milligrams BID followed by five milligrams BID instead. And so we'll come back to this question. Some general points to consider. Severe thrombocytopenia, which is often defined as platelets less than 50,000, increases the risk of bleeding, but offers no protection against venous thromboembolism progression or recurrence. Additionally, the risk for spontaneous bleed is approximately 10% when the platelet count falls below 10,000, and this can increase further when platelets drop lower. Additionally, anticoagulation will increase this risk further. And so patient-specific factors need to be considered, and we will discuss them on the next few slides in order to balance both the risk of bleeding and thrombosis. So there's several factors we should consider when evaluating a patient's bleeding risk. So the risk factors highlighted in red are ones that pertain to our patient SB. So our patient is a 79-year-old female. She has platelets of 4,000, a recent breast cancer diagnosis, anemia, and additionally is on dual antiplatelet therapy for her history of NSTEMI. It's important to note that certain types of cancer, such as hematologic, primary GI cancers, and metastatic cancer, do increase the risk of bleeding compared to other types. And the other risk factors listed here are also important to consider. So previous bleeding, renal or hepatic failure, diabetes, alcohol use, recent surgery, and being at a high fall risk. So in addition to bleeding, we should also similarly assess the patient's risk for venous thromboembolism progression. And so the list here is divided into higher risk and lower risk factors. And this delineation may help providers to determine the appropriate course of action in a patient with a significant bleeding risk. So for example, it may be appropriate to temporarily defer anticoagulation in a patient with severe thrombocytopenia and a chronic upper extremity DVT. And so in this case, the bleeding risk may outweigh the thrombotic risk. And again, as previously mentioned, the factors highlighted in red here are ones that pertain to our patient, which include acute symptomatic segmental PE, a previous thromboembolism, and active cancer or cancer treatment. Most of the available guidance for managing anticoagulation and severe thrombocytopenia come from the 2018 ISTH and the 2021 NCCN guidelines, and they've largely been focused on cancer-associated thrombosis. 
These guidelines provide similar recommendations as you can see here. They suggest full-dose anticoagulation when the platelets are at least 50,000 and to temporarily discontinue anticoagulation when the platelets fall below 25,000. When looking at platelets between 25 to 50,000, they recommend risk stratifying as we previously discussed. So for patients at high thrombotic risk, they suggest using platelet transfusions to maintain platelets of 40 to 50,000 and using full-dose anticoagulation. In patients who are at a lower thrombotic risk, it may be reasonable to either do prophylactic or half-dose anticoagulation. And so I just wanted to highlight an example of half-dose anticoagulation. So you can see here, enoxaparin is typically dosed at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours in patients with normal renal function. And in comparison, the prophylactic dosing would be about 40 milligrams once a day. So let's move into some primary literature. The four studies listed here are retrospective cohort studies that evaluate the incidence of bleeding and thrombotic outcomes in cancer patients who have been diagnosed with an acute VTE in the setting of concomitant thrombocytopenia. In our first study by Kapalovic et al., 74 patients were evaluated and divided into three treatment groups. The first was complete treatment, which was defined as a treatment course for at least three months of therapeutic anticoagulation. The second was no treatment, defined as no anticoagulation. And the third was partial treatment, defined as a course of anticoagulation where the doser intensity was decreased. And so 30 patients received complete treatment, 17 received no treatment, and 27 received partial treatment. And there were 13 total bleeding events that occurred. Three of these were major bleeding events. However, all bleeding events occurred in patients with hematologic cancer. Additionally, 23 patients had a recurrent VTE. However, eight of those patients were not receiving anticoagulation and 12 were receiving partial therapy. And so the authors concluded that both bleeding and thrombotic risk remains high in these patients. In the second study here by Canal et al., 128 patients with hematologic malignancies were evaluated, and the authors compared patients who had significant thrombocytopenia, which they defined as platelets less than 50,000, to patients who did not. And so therapy during significant thrombocytopenia could include prophylactic or therapeutic low molecular weight heparin, warfarin, or observation, and patients who did not have thrombocytopenia received standard of care. At two-year follow-up, the risk of clinically significant bleeding and thromboembolism progression were similar between the two groups. And importantly, four out of the five patients who did have a bleeding event had this occur while they were receiving therapeutic low molecular weight heparin. And so in our third study by Samuelson, Bano et al., 82 patients with an acute VTE during treatment-related thrombocytopenia were evaluated. And of these patients, 67 received anticoagulation. And 88% of those received platelet transfusions to maintain platelets of 50,000. And the authors concluded that patients who were transfused to this threshold had a risk of bleeding that was similar to patients who were unanticoagulated. Importantly, though, they had a higher incidence of transfusion-related adverse events. And in our last study here by Huffton et al., the authors evaluated 78 patients with hematologic malignancies and a new VTE. And their objective was to compare bleeding and recurrent VTE outcomes, looking at patients on anticoagulation versus no anticoagulation. And they found that bleeding occurred in 27% of patients when receiving anticoagulation versus only 3 when it was held. And similarly for recurrent VTE, this occurred in 2% of patients receiving anticoagulation versus 15% when anticoagulation was held. And so the authors concluded that temporarily holding anticoagulation when platelets are less than 50,000 may actually reduce adverse outcomes. And so the bottom line from these studies is that anticoagulation does significantly increase the risk of bleeding in patients with severe thrombocytopenia. However, withholding anticoagulation may actually increase the risk of recurrent VTE. So on this slide here, I've created a flow chart as an adaptation from the available guideline recommendations. Again, we should start by evaluating patients' degree of thrombocytopenia followed by their risk for VTE progression. And so depending on these risks, it may be appropriate to provide full-dose anticoagulation, prophylactic or half-dose anticoagulation, or to temporarily withhold anticoagulation. 
Additionally, I wanted to note that the 2021 NCCN guidelines currently do not recommend the use of direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs in patients with chemotherapy-induced thrombocytopenia when the platelets fall below 50,000. And this is due to the limited data that's available for use in these patients. So coming back to our original question, which would be, what would be your response to the physician regarding starting a heparin infusion? And so based on the information that we've just reviewed, I would suggest option three, which would be to recommend transfusing the platelets to at least 50,000, initiating the therapeutic heparin infusion as soon as the platelets reach this threshold. So since our patient has an acute segmental PE, she is at high risk for thrombosis progression. All right, so in summary, anticoagulation increases the risk of bleeding among patients with thrombocytopenia. However, thrombocytopenia does not provide protection against recurrence or progression of VTE. And in patients with acute high-risk VTE, current guidelines suggest that full-dose anticoagulation with either low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin can be considered while using transfusions to maintain platelets of 50,000. In this case, the chief complaint is for HP who presents to your hospital emergency department with worsening pain and swelling in her right leg. HP is a 58-year-old female. About one week ago, she says she fell from a fourth step of a ladder while painting her house and banged her leg on the rung really good on the way down. This caused her a lot of pain, and she has been homebound since then due to the pain with minimal ambulation. Initially, she only had bruising at the site. However, the last three days, her leg has worsened and has become red and swollen. Past medical history for HP includes hypertension, dyslipidemia, osteoarthritis, diabetes, and debilitating back pain that's managed with an intrathecal pain pump with hydromorphone and obesity. On exam, she has a swollen right leg with erythema and edema that extends above the knee. On imaging, Dopplers reveal an acute extensive deep vein thrombosis extending from the calf approximately to the popliteal vein. The emergency department physician wants to initiate river band at standard deep vein thrombosis dosing. Of note, she is also on aspirin, 81 milligrams a day at home. You're the emergency department pharmacist. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you, one, process the order as written, two, recommend immediately removing the pump so anticoagulation can be started, three, change the patient warfarin since this is safe with indwelling catheters, or four, discuss the risks and benefits of different treatment options with a physician while also involving the patient in this decision making. So let's move into the meat of this subject. So when I was asked to do this presentation, of course, the first thing I did is make sure I did a comprehensive literature search, not to mention I have seen this in practice as well. And certainly there's no clear specific guidance to this type of situation. However, I think one of the things that's tricky that maybe we don't think about, there is guidance on how to handle, say, anticoagulation around, say, the insertion or manipulation of pain pumps. And that's the most critical thing to understand in this type of situation. The other thing that's really critical to understand in this type the situation is just your basic anatomy and what the risks are of bleeding in these situations or where that concern comes from. Now, spinal hematoma can be catastrophic because of that pressure it places on the spinal cord. So spinal bleed, spinal hematoma is defined as bleeding within the spinal neural axis. Bleeding most commonly occurs in the epidural space, but it's actually very rare. Bleeding can lead to paralysis without urgent decompression, and the risk of bleeding tends to be higher when larger needles are used, age or abnormalities are found in the vertebral column, coagulopathies happen, difficulty with needle catheter placement, indwelling catheters that are put in, or use of drugs that affect hemostasis. And I could tell you early in 
my career, I saw a patient become paralyzed with anoxaparin. And in that particular case, they both had trouble with the needle placement in this particular case. And also the anesthesiologist had felt there had been some type of abnormality in the vertebral column. So the American Society of Regional Anesthesia publishes the guidelines that generally are looked to as the authoritative reference on the subject matter. The first edition was developed in 1997 in response to increased use of neuroaxial anesthesia and thromboprophylaxis in the postoperative setting, largely due to the introduction of low molecular weight heparin products. Currently, the original guideline is on its fourth edition, and due to the rarity of bleeding events, as you can imagine, this relies heavily on published case series to analyze incidence rates and risk factors. Note there is also a pain procedure-specific guideline that's separate from the original ASRA guideline, and that's actually what's more applicable to this case, and some of you may not just be familiar with these guidelines, and it's the second reference listed below. In that particular guideline, they stratify the different risks for bleeding of the different types of pain procedures that are done. And this is listed on the slide. I certainly am not going to read through this entire slide, but that's just looking at our case. When you're actually inserting or manipulating an intrathecal catheter or some type of pain implant, that's when the risk of bleeding actually is highest. So in those particular situations when they're high risk of bleeding, as shown in the previous slide, the recommendations from ASMA is looking at the specific anticoagulant being used and they offer specific guidance on when it can be restarted. So up front fractionated heparin, they recommend 24 hours, low molecular weight heparin 12 to 24 hours, fonaparin X 24 hours, warfarin recommending to restart the following day and direct oral anticoagulants to wait 24 hours. So now let's take this back to this case. Is this a situation where we've had a new paint pump inserted? No, there should not be a bleeding risk here if we're not planning on manipulating that type of pain pump or what have you during this immediate situation. So other clinical considerations in a case like this. Has the patient been having any issues with the catheter or is any manipulation planned? So maybe you have a good electronic medical record system in that pain clinic as part of your EMR, but maybe not. So maybe you have to touch base with them and see if there's anything planned in the very near future. Is there any anatomical issues or bleeding issues that maybe you don't know about? You know, when you're looking at your different agent that you're actually going to pick. You're going to have to think about reversibility versus convenience and adherence types of issues. And then I always remind people that if you're going to pick warfarin, which really is not first line anymore in situations with deep vein thrombosis, but if you were, you really need to have access to a high quality anticoagulation clinic to optimize outcomes. What are the patient's preferences? Can they afford a direct oral anticoagulant, for example? And then you need to make sure you minimize the risk of bleeding by removing risk factors. So she needs to know that she shouldn't be painting from that ladder when she's anticoagulated. There's no clear indication for aspirin in this situation, so that really should be stopped. And we need a clear communication that this should be a three-month warfarin or DOAC duration, depending on what's picked in this type of situation, because this is clearly a provoke of venous thromboembolism. Patient needs to be educated on signs of neurological compromise, and then they also have to know that catheter manipulation is out of the question when they're fully anticoagulated. They would need to hold that therapy, and preferably you would want to avoid that for three months. And finally, in situation like this, you could consider admitting the patient if you're worried about neurological monitoring, but that may or may not be needed, just depending on the individual patient's circumstance. So what would you do in this situation? Well, really, this is one of those situations, really any typical anticoagulant could be considered in a case like this. There really is no preferred agent other than we, in general, prefer direct oral anticoagulants. So 
you really need to involve that patient in shared decision-making with the provider and decide what you're going to do. And certainly using a direct oral anticoagulant would be completely reasonable in a case like this. The so key takeaways is anticoagulation decisions in this type of situation are not based on strong data. It's critical to understand what increases versus lowers the risk of bleeding in interventional pain procedures. And finally, make sure that we collaborate with the entire team and the patient to make sure we have good sound decision-making. Next patient here is JM, and he is a 62-year-old male who presents to the ED with new-onset chest pain that's worse on exertion. He was shoveling snow when he first noted the pain radiating down his left arm. And so an EKG revealed ST segment elevations, and notably his troponin was greater than 5,000. And so given concerns for a STEMI, JM was taken to the cath lab and received two drug-eluting stents. Prior to discharge, JM receives an echocardiography to evaluate his left ventricular function. And this echo reveals apical akinesis and evidence of an LV thrombus. And so the cardiologist asks you for a recommendation on which DOAC to use and what the dosing would be. So apical or left ventricular thrombus is a common complication following acute myocardial infarction or in the setting of dilated cardiomyopathy. And the mechanism of apical thrombus formation is really related and explained by Virchow's triad. So LV wall akinesis can lead to blood stasis, Ischemia leads to subendocardial tissue damage. And finally, patients who have acute coronary syndromes are in a hypercoagulable state due to increased prothrombin and other factors. And so our goal of treatment is to prevent stroke or systemic embolism. However, the evidence that's evaluating the most appropriate anticoagulant options is currently limited. And so here you can see the current guidelines that address the management of apical thrombus, the 2013 ACCF AHA STEMI guidelines, and both the 2014 and 2021 AHA American Stroke Association guidelines recommend warfarin with an INR goal of two to three for a duration of three months. Additionally, the 2017 European Society of Cardiology guidelines make no specific recommendation on choice of oral anticoagulant, but do recommend up to six months of therapy with follow-up imaging to guide discontinuation. Additionally, I thought it was important to point out that the 2021 AHA American Stroke Association guidelines removed their previous recommendations from the 2014 guidelines for suggesting DOACs in patients who are intolerant to warfarin. And they now state that DOACs for this indication is uncertain. So most of the guideline recommendations that we've previously discussed for using warfarin in these patients have been based on studies that have preceded percutaneous coronary angiography in the management of acute MI. Importantly, there are no prospective randomized control trials of warfarin or DOACs for this indication, and the available evidence for using DOACs is limited to small case reports, case series, and observational studies. So we'll quickly review a few studies that have evaluated DOACs in the management of apical thrombus. So our first study here by Fletterman et al., they evaluated 52 patients who had an LV thrombus and were treated with either apixaban, rivaroxan, or dabigatran. And when looking at the 35 patients who had follow-up TTE imaging, 83% of those patients had evidence of LV thrombus resolution. One cardioembolic event occurred during the study, and four bleeding events occurred. However, importantly, the patients who had bleeding events were also on concomitant antiplatelet therapy. In the next study by Ali et al., 110 patients with LV thrombus were evaluated, and patients either received warfarin or a DOAC. At one year, they found that the incidence of stroke or systemic embolism was significantly higher in the warfarin group when compared to the DOAC group. And notably, the rates of LV thrombus resolution were similar between groups. However, resolution occurred earlier in patients treated with a DOAC. So in the next two retrospective studies listed here by Gudetti and Deher et al., the authors again evaluated patients who had LV thrombus and were looking at the rates of LV thrombus resolution. So both studies found that when comparing warfarin to DOACs, the rates of LV thrombus resolution and stroke were similar between groups. 
In the last study here by Jones, 101 patients with LV thrombus received either, again, warfarin or a DOAC, and they evaluated the rates of LV thrombus resolution. And so the authors found earlier resolution of LV thrombus in patients treated with a DOAC and a significantly higher rate of LV thrombus resolution in the DOAC group compared to the warfarin group at one year. Importantly, there were no differences in the rates of systemic thromboembolism. And so the big takeaway from these studies is that DOACs result in at least similar rates of stroke or systemic embolism and thrombus resolution when compared to warfarin in patients with LV or apical thrombus. And so one final study I wanted to include was the study by Robinson et al. And this was a little bit larger study. It was a multi-center retrospective study of 514 patients. And you can see the pie graph on the right here, which depicts the different treatment groups within the study. Notably, there was a therapy change group, meaning that patients who were initially treated with a DOAC could have been transitioned to warfarin and vice versa. And so when considering therapy change, 185 patients received a DOAC at any point in the study and 300 received warfarin. So the authors found that stroke or systemic embolism occurred more frequently in the DOAC group when compared to the warfarin group. However, if you see here, when you evaluate the time course for occurrence of stroke or systemic embolism, rates were actually similar between the two groups in the first three months. So the majority of these events actually occurred from three months to the end of the study. And as we previously discussed, current guidelines recommend a three-month duration or up to six months in the European Society of Cardiology guidelines, treatment with an oral anticoagulant following diagnosis of an apical thrombus. So it's really interesting to note that the majority of these events actually occurred after that time. So one commonality of many of the studies we've just reviewed was the lack of reporting of DOAC dosing. In this review of 85 patients from 47 case reports and case series, you can see the dosing strategies have varied significantly. So there's doses of apixaban 2.5 to 5 milligrams BID and rivaroxaban of 15 milligrams daily to 15 milligrams BID. Importantly, however, 74 of 85 patients had follow-up imaging, and in this study they found that 93% of those patients had LV thrombus resolution. And so in summary, previous guidelines have recommended warfarin with an INR goal of 2 to 3 for three months following diagnosis. However, DOACs are an attractive option due to their predictable pharmacokinetics, lack of routine monitoring, and reduction in bleeding outcomes when compared to warfarin. And finally, apixaban may be considered on a case-by-case -case basis in the management of apical thrombus. However, the appropriate dosing is currently unclear. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHP Official, and thank you for all you do for your patients.